Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. I'm Janet Golden. I'm a historian of childhood, historian of women, and historian of medicine, and I'm here interviewing... Hi, I'm Melissa Clapper, professor of history and director of women's and gender studies at Rowan University. And we are sitting in my dining room, actually, for this interview on Monday, February 24th, 2020. Well, I was excited to learn all about your book because, like you, I did take ballet class, although I didn't stick with it as long. And it occurred to me that you made this wonderful intellectual leap as a historian to say, let me contextualize and historicize an experience common to all these girls and to some young boys that I had. And it didn't occur to me to do that. So what was that spark that got you saying, I'm going to write a history of ballet class? Well, so I decided to write this book, which is just basically called Ballet Class and American History. I never came up with a catchier title. Uh, but I decided to write it. I wanted to, I have a few answers to that. One is that I, w I remained interested in ballet. Like many people who took ballet class as a child, it was something that stuck with me. I took ballet class myself all the way through high school. I am a ballet subscriber. I go to performances. I've always read books about ballet, even long after stopping classes. And it's just something that has always been an interest of mine. And then at some point, it did occur to me as a historian of childhood, you know, this is something a lot of kids do. <laughs> Maybe I should look into this. So I don't know if I have a much more sophisticated answer than that. And I also do like to write about topics that no one has written about before. And it was immediately apparent to me that no one had ever paid much attention to ballet class from an intellectual standpoint. There's a huge literature on the art form of ballet, but just nothing on the social history. Well, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting to me about the book is you've taken the world of education outside the classroom. And can you say a little more about that? Yeah, well, that's something that's important to me. Um, as someone who's written extensively about childhood and youth in the past, um, I've always approached education from that broader perspective. Um, in my first book about adolescent Jewish girls in the late 1800s and early 1900s, I had actually more than one chapter about education, alternate education, outside the classroom, since, of course, so many immigrant Jewish girls during that time period had no access to regular formal education. So that's something that I've long been interested in. And I also have several friends who have recently written books about camping and in really keeping on top of what they were doing and reading some of their manuscripts as they've gone along. I've, that It's stayed with me, this belief that education is not something that only happens in a classroom and that arts education in particular has just gotten short shrift in the literature. Someone could just as easily write a book like this about piano lessons. And ah. should. <laughs> that yes. won't be me. <laughs> yes. um, and another thing you've written about, of course, is immigrant children. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about your book that part of the ballet class story is about immigrant Russian women 
teaching ballet. So how did your background in immigration history influence that? Well, I was interested in who the teachers were, not just who the students were. And there's, as of course, multiple answers to that. But it is definitely the case that through, even through the baby boomer era, or at least part of it, many of the ballet teachers across the United States were European emigres of one kind or another. Um, that was especially true for the people who are aspiring to be professional dancers. The most professional, highest level kind of elite teachers were really, you know, tended to be from Russia or then the Soviet Union, um, sometimes from Italy and France as well. But it remained true for a long time that there was this kind of glamour attached to the emigre teacher, so that even teachers who were not Russian at all still pretended that they were and would run studios with names like Madame Yusovska's Ballet Academy, things like that, even if their names were really... Janet Smith, just to get people in the door. So there is, there is this association of ballet and Russia, and that's something that I do track in the book. And part of what I'm interested in is how ballet class became American. Um, we can come back to this later if you're interested, but ballet class operates it very differently in the United States than it, does, than it ever did in Russia or the Soviet Union or in most other places in Europe. And so I was very interested in the fact that Russian teachers and other European teachers helped build this very American enterprise. So your book isn't really just history of ballet, history of education, history of childhood. <laughs> it's also got immigration history and sort of the history of these entrepreneurial women who had the opportunity to build businesses by opening ballet studios. Yes, I think that's actually a really important point because there's this kind of genealogy of ballet from the artistic per historical perspective that has mostly men at the top. People like George Balanchine in the United States. Um, I could go on and on. Any, if you ask anyone to list the five most important choreographers or artistic directors, they're pretty much all going to be men. Um, there is some truth to that historically, although I would argue there are women who should be on that list too. But that completely obscures the experience that almost all kids who took ballet class had, which was ballet class with a female teacher. And so this point about female entrepreneurship is, I think, really significant and one that needed more study. And also thinking about the gender dynamics of women in authority positions, women who were experts, women who had to run businesses. Um, some of them in the earlier decades had some issues with running the businesses. Sometimes they had to incorporate in their husband's names because they couldn't get business loans or insurance as women. Um, that, of course, has changed over time, but it was very interesting to see how gender played a role there. And it did sometimes lead to resentment about the more elite strata of ballet class, which were more dominated by men. Well, let's go down the path of gender a little further <laughs> and ask why is, was and is ballet class so heavily gendered? Uh, boys have bodies, girls have bodies. Girls can leap, boys can leap. Why? did ballet become so gendered in the popular imagination and in reality? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> so one thing to point out is that if you look at the history of the art form, ballet was gendered in the early years, or by early years I mean the 17th century, and at that point it was gendered male. Louis XIV was a ballet dancer himself, and he started the first ballet school in the world in France. Most of the early choreographers and practitioners and dancers were men. And it's actually not until the 19th century when a new wave of romanticism comes into culture in general and starts 
focusing on things like fairies and sprites and natural, earth, you know, unearthly spirits, that's when you started to see women taking more of a role in, the, in, in ballets, in professional ballets. That's also the same moment, not coincidentally, um, when some women really start to up their technical ability. That's when you have certain um, ballet dancers like Marie Camargo and Tag Marie Taglioni um, shortening their skirts and starting to experiment with point shoes so more of their legs can be seen, which was a little scandalous. And by more of their legs, I mean their ankles. It was very scandalous at the time. And so women, because they were going on point, starting in the early 1800s, were able to kind of do these feet, amazing feats and make themselves look very airy and sylph-like, all the more so if they were being lifted by men. And so there was a real change in what ballet looked like on stage with men doing more of the carrying and lifting and somewhat less of the bravura dancing and women now as the focus. Since that time, since that early romantic period in the early 1800s, women, that ballet became much more gendered female than it had been in the past. I think you could actually argue that there might be some shifting around that now. Okay, I don't want to talk too much about the contemporary as a historian, but I, you know, there's contestation over that now, about the way women's and men's bodies appear on stage. Of course, that's all for professional dancers. The point became, though, because women were um, being featured in choreography using all these new features of point shoes and things like that, that larger ensembles of women began to develop, and that required more girls to learn ballet to go on stage. And so that started to increase the opportunities for girls to take ballet class and maybe decrease a little bit for men. Um, in Europe, male dancing remained a very popular, very admired thing. And so there was somewhat less stigma attached. But in the United States, where dancing by most, in most uh, precincts of American culture was seen as something for women to do, um, the gendering of ballet class happened like, fast and strong. And so there were always boys in ballet class, but there were never as many as girls. And from the earliest periods of ballet class becoming popular at the early 20th century till today, you could still find studios where there are no boys at all. And then, um, I don't want to go on too much longer about just this one issue, but there's also the way that because so many girls have taken ballet class, then ballet gets associated with girl culture. It's like a vicious cycle, a virtuous cycle, I don't know what you want to call it. And then when ballet becomes more girly and pink and shiny, then it becomes something that boys are even less attracted to. So it creates, there's this kind of self-perpetuating gendered um, nature of ballet class that's associated or related to the culture. So in your book, you took on the challenge of explaining how ballet became an seen as gendered female and yet always had male leadership yeah. in the professional world and always had boys in class. So what sources did you go to to extract the male parts of the ballet class world? Well, that's, a bigger, that's part of a bigger question on sources, which was a challenge for me. This was not my first book. This is my fourth book. And I thought I had a pretty decent handle on how to do certain kinds of research, but I found some frustrations, and this I think will be particularly interesting to um, historians of childhood and youth. You know, there's a little bit of maybe division's too strong a word, but there are people in our field who write from the history, from the perspective of childhood and youth, more of the prescriptive sources, looking at how ideas about children and childhood develop. And then there are people who write about the history of children themselves, from their perspective, with the children at the center and their voices centered. I'm not suggesting that that is an impermeable boundary, nor should it be, but there is a little bit of a split. My first two books on children were very much focused on the children, on their voices, and I assumed that I was going to do that again, only to find that it was impossible. 
that there was just not enough material. There were just not, I could not find anything like enough material to have ch this a child-centered, a child-voice-centered book, which frustrated me for quite a long time. So instead, I had to piece, piece together, kind of work around that, incorporating children's voices whenever and wherever I could find them, but not having that be the focus in some ways. So instead, I read zillions of dance periodicals. I read all of Dance Magazine from 1927 till today. Thank God for the University of the Arts that has most of that in hard copy, because if I'd had to read it on microfilm, I would never have made it. Um, I read a lot of dance magazines. I read a lot of dance memoirs by professional dancers. They are not normal. Right? They do not have the normal trajectory, but their earliest experiences with ballet classes were just like everybody else's. And so that was useful, and a lot of men have written those memoirs. Um, I read in Dance Magazine and in some of the other periodicals, there were sometimes young dancer sections that either purported to be written by young people or in many cases actually were. So there were some voices in there to get at children's own experiences and boys typically contributed to that. There were a few dance schools that had yearbooks and the, you know, the same kinds of sources we would generally use um, for history of childhood that I was able to access. I read a lot of children's books about children, about ballet, both fiction and nonfiction, many written by former dancers, both male and female. I did a number of interviews, which was a little bit of a first for me, talking to live people. <laughs> Not so sure I would want to do that again, but it was kind of interesting. <laughs> um, so I, I had to piece together a really fragmentary documentary record to come up with a coherent perspective. And every place I could, I looked for children's voices and especially for boys. And one of the issues you raise in the book that I'm fascinated by as a medical historian is the ballet body. And I think it would help our listeners if you would explain it and then talk about all the controversies around it. Yes. So the ballet body has changed over time. Um, I think when most people think of the ideal ballet body today, they think tall, long, lean, slim, long neck, you know, well-proportioned body uh, for both women and for men. But that has not necessarily always been the case. Just as if we look at Miss America, you know, beauty pageant type pictures or swimming suit pictures from the 1920s, those are not the bodies that now would be seen as the ideal. The same thing is true for ballet. If you look at even someone like Anna Pavlova, for instance, you'd think, oh, she must have been you know, the or text of what a ballet body should look like. She wouldn't get a job today. Too short and too squat. I mean, she was extremely graceful and obviously very talented, but would not have met that match. The major... I would say one of the major influences on today's idea of the ideal ballet body was George Balanchine, who really had an idea about a body that could move very quickly. Um, his choreography, t until this day, requires very fast movement, and not all dancers can do it well. They have to be trained in a Balanchine, if not technique, exactly, actually, maybe a style. Um, and his idea was that taller, longer, leaner, thinner bodies could move faster and have better reaction time and therefore be able to be more musical. And although Balanchine was hardly the only ballet teacher of note um, in the United States, he was really one of the great modern artists of the 20th century, I would argue, and was just enormously influential. And so his idea of what ballet body should look like has just trickled down in all kinds of ways. But that's controversial because, of course, not everybody could have that kind of body. Of course, that was always true, no matter what ballet body you were looking at, not everyone could look like that. But that model is particularly hard to achieve. And there have been moments when there's been a lot of critique about what aspiring professional dancers in particular have to do to themselves in order to achieve that body. It turns out in the research I did, and I read a lot of research um, 
among psychologists and sociologists and medical professionals and you know um, physical therapists and kinesiologists as well as the other kinds of sources I mentioned. It, there have been a, a number of studies of ballet students to look at this, particularly the kind of stereotyped idea that all ballet dancers have eating disorders. Turns out that's really not the case. I'm not going to stand here and say that none of them do, and things were worse in the 70s and 80s than they are now. There's a much better understanding of how bodies work, and ballet now gets treated kind of under the rubric of sports medicine, so people know better how to deal with their bodies. But they were never the uh, population most in danger. The population most in danger were the 16 or 17 year olds who hoped to be professional dancers and thought that if they just lost 5, 10 more pounds, they, that's what would get them over the um, hump. They're the ones who would be most likely to develop eating issues. So the regular kid, the regular 10 year old kid in a ballet class somewhere in Cleveland was not so likely to have eating issues. You know, might have recognized that his or her body didn't match the ideal, but it didn't matter that much to the person taking one or two classes a week who quit after fifth grade to go play a game, to go play soccer or something. So there is this critique of the ballet body, and it is a valid one, but it also has been, I think, overblown in popular culture in some ways, so that now you couldn't even have a show about ballet dancers that didn't have at least one anorexic and one bulimic, because after all, they're ballet dancers, and that's a little overdrawn. So one of the things that I'm hearing from you is that because ballet class was such a widespread phenomenon and not everybody was going to go on to a professional level or even on through high school, uh, there, ballet class began more or less more democratized than it is now. And we'll get to issues of race mm -hmm. and class in a moment. Um, but I think perhaps that that critique of the ballet body that you bring forth is really important because now we have an era when people in wheelchairs are doing ballet, yes. when, when dance performance has really grown to resemble the ballet class model more, where everybody can be a dancer. I think that democratization is really important. That's a point I start making early in the book, that in America, unlike in other places, if you saw ballet and you thought, oh, I want to do that, well, then you could do it as long as you could afford to pay for classes. This was not true in other places, in, Soviet, in Russia and then the Soviet Union or in France. You either got identified at a very early age as somebody with potential talent and a particular body type and then got slotted into a state-sponsored ballet school, or that was it. There was no such thing as recreational ballet class in those countries. Um, but in the United States, from the earliest moments of ballet class, it was a market commodity. You could pay for it, you could have it. Didn't matter what you looked like, didn't matter what your ability was, didn't matter how delusional you might have been. It was something that was accessible to anybody with the money. So it's, I would say, conditional democracy in that way, and I think actually remains that way. Also keep in mind that the vast majority of kids who took ballet class never had any interest in being professional dancers, nor would their parents have wanted them to. So that was about a different part of the ballet body question, and that's about disciplining the body. Learning poise and grace and discipline and muscle control, which is another way to think about the ballet body, and that has benefits even if you in no way have a balancing ballet body. Yes, I can remember being told that ballet class would help me to stand up straight. Yes, poise and grace. Well, I'm short. I'm about 5'3", for those of you who don't know me, and people always think I'm taller, and I completely chalk that up to 14 years of ballet class. Oh, I should have taken longer then, because I'm 5'2", <laughs> and maybe I could look as tall as Melissa. Uh, but let's talk about one of the issues you bring up in your book that I think is so fascinating is the issue of race in ballet. We kind of live in a Missy Copeland yeah. awareness 
period, a little bubble maybe. But there's a longer history there, and I hope you'll talk about it. Okay, so one of the things, this was very important to me. When I was writing ballet class in American history, I wanted, of course, throughout the book to have gender, class, race, sexuality embedded throughout the book. But there are some issues that are worthy of their own space. And so there is a chapter on boys in ballet, um, and there's a chapter on ballet and girl culture, and there is a chapter about race in ballet, because this is a very fraught topic. Even now, when I was speaking and doing some interviews, actually, with ballet teachers, and um, they, it is a very fraught topic. It's, it makes people uncomfortable. When Misty Copeland was promoted to the American Ballet Theater's highest level, principal ballerina, it was a front-page story on the New York Times. That's actually how my chapter starts. And there was an online editorial, or an online feature, I should say, that talked about the fact that although she was the first in this particular company, she wasn't the first African-American principal ballerina, and there had been men as principal male dancers since at least the 1950s. Um, there actually were some women, too, starting in the 1950s. But overall, ballet companies have been extremely, extremely white, especially the more elite the company, the whiter it has tended to be. Less um, prominent companies, regional companies, have sometimes had more racial and ethnic diversity. And there's this long, I'm going to say sordid history, of A, segregation, so that African-American kids had no access to ballet class except in segregated studios. And there are cities like Philadelphia, where Janet and I are right now, um, or Washington, D.C., that had you know, really thriving scenes with segregated ballet studios starting in the 1910s all the way through the 1960s, through the Civil Rights Movement, where as some of those people did go on to professional careers, and maybe by the time they got to the end of their training, maybe then they could integrate into um, major companies and schools, but not that often. But without that, they just would have had no access whatsoever. And some people who are heroes, so to speak, in some aspects of my book, like Catherine Littlefield, who was an important woman, a ballet teacher with her own school and company in Philadelphia in the 30s, but she was segregationist and any dancer, she actually discovered that a dancer in her company was African-American, a light-skinned woman, and she immediately fired her. That woman then went on to run one of the major segregated studios in, um, in Philadelphia. So even the people who were progressive in some ways were not always on these issues. And there were also dance critics who really put forward a very particular aesthetic, not just the ballet body as long, tall, and lean, but also as white, and would say things like, from the 30s into well into the 60s, well, ballet was developed on European bodies. Is it any surprise that African Americans don't do it well? I mean, really horribly racist <laughs> kinds of comments, those people who said things like that were not, cannot always be fairly painted as just irredeemably racist. The person who said that, for instance, John Martin, um, who was the dance critic for the New York Times, was actually a progressive liberal who was in favor of civil rights. But for him, it was an aesthetic judgment, and it's certainly a racially inflected, if not actively racist, um, aesthetic. And so ballet bodies come up again there in thinking about African Americans and ballet. Well, don't you think it's interesting that ballet is viewed as an art, but it's also an athletic performance, and yet we don't put it in that category. We don't see the physical strains it imposes, the physical demands on the body day after day after day in rehearsal and then in performance. Why do we not always recognize the athleticism of ballet? Well, I'll tell you what's something funny where this is related to an earlier point. When athleticism does come up, it's often in defense of boys who are in ballet class. 
oh, you know, it's fine for a boy to be a ballet class because either it'll make him a better football player, which is a very common thing, and in fact, a number of football players did take ballet class, most famously Lynn Swan of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who appeared multiple times on Sesame Street to demonstrate that boys can do ballet too. Um, but also, and there are also football teams that took ballet class together, usually with, under much protest, but then their injury rate went down almost all the time that they did that. So athleticism does get brought up in ballet, but usually as a defense of men and boys in ballet class. Why people don't look at ballet and see the enormous amount of strength in athleticism, I think, is also gendered, because women aren't supposed to exert themselves. And if ballet is gendered feminine, and women are supposed to not sweat when they're doing something that you know, requires exertion, well, then it can't be that athletic. And I do think that that is something that is changing now. I don't think that that is, people do have a better understanding now of how hard it is to dance. And I think that the way that ballet and other forms of dance have shown up in pop culture, like on TV and television reality shows, has actually helped with that. There's other critiques you can make of those shows, but they definitely sh they show how much work it is. Well, that brings me to the next question, and it really sparked by that reference to Sesame Street. So you've got to enjoy, or perhaps not enjoy as much as you could otherwise enjoy, the popular culture presentations of ballet. So I'm going to ask you a question we don't often ask historians. What was the most fun for you in doing the research and delving into the popular culture? Hmm. That's a tough one. <laughs> well, I did watch a bunch of ballet movies I had not seen. Um, some really early ones. There's some you know, early 1920s, 1930s ballet movies I hadn't seen before, and I enjoyed watching those. But actually, I think maybe Sesame Street is a little bit of the answer to that and the Muppets. I kind of enjoyed go going to YouTube. You know, it's a new era, a new world of research, and just you know, watching Rudolph Nuria dance with the pig to Swine, Swine Lake on Sesame Street. It was not Miss Piggy. Apparently, there were copyright issues there. But he did. There's this whole long extended scene with you know, the greatest male ballet dancer of his day dancing with a Muppet pig to Swan Lake. <laughs> well, I think it's important that historians ask the question about fun. And I think to get back to those girls in ballet class, what it really represents ultimately in your book is not ballet class, a history of how did we get our modern professional companies and dancers, but how did the ballet world infuse the world of girlhood for much of the 20th century? And why haven't we until now really explored that? We've explored Girl Scouts, we've explored Campfire Girls. Why not ballet class? You know, why I, the neglect? Yeah, I think there has been neglect. And the book, you know, this book, Ballet Class in American History, is definitely not, it is not primarily about professional dancers. It is not primarily about companies. It's silly to pretend that there's no effect of the professional ballet world on regular kids like me, like you. That would just be foolish, but that's not the experience that, I mean, literally millions of kids have taken ballet class. And so that's what the focus is here. And I think maybe part of the neglect has to do with the way that ballet has been so gendered as girly. You know, think if it's associated with girls, eh, how important could it really be? Which, of course, I would like to think everyone listening to this podcast would take great exception to that. But I do think it's there a little bit. It seems so frilly, you know, and frivolous. Why would we spend time on this? <laughs> Well, and yet, it's a huge part of childhood culture, just the number of ballet books. That was something else that was fun. I mean, I read hundreds, literally hundreds, of ballet books for kids. So it's a good thing you live near the public library. <laughs> yes. You can go right to that <laughs> yes. section. Yes, I had read many of them before, because like I said, as a kid myself, I was obsessed with ballet and read everything, and I really enjoyed going back to those 70s and 80s books. But there were books from well, well, well before that, and it was a lot of fun, actually, for me to read and analyze. 
those books. And the fact that so many, some of those books, like Ballet Shoes by Noel Stretfield, which is a, you know, a childhood classic, that book has been in print since 1936. Wow. Complete, consistently in print. It has been published in languages from Croatian to Thai, and Braille, for that matter. I mean, there, there is a long-standing interest of children for books about ballet, and that, I think, speaks to both the fun of it, but also the way that things that children are interested in sometimes get swept under the rug, and our whole field is trying to remedy that neglect. So if... If you were going to stand and give that, I guess people call it the elevator speech. Uh oh, I'm not good at elevator speeches. You're not good at elevator speeches. I'll make it simpler. So, what, after we finish the book, and maybe some of us reflect on our own childhood experiences or those of other family members, um, what three things are we going to walk away knowing as historians as well as perhaps participants of Ballet World? What are the three things, the real new things that we're going to walk away with from this? Well, one, I think, is the way that ballet class intersects with so many other just parts of American social and cultural history. As a quick example, Title IX. What's Title IX, you would say, have to do with ballet class? A lot. Because after Title IX passed and girls had more athletic opportunities, they stayed away from dance class in droves. And dance class, the whole dance class world, not just ballet class, said, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, how are we going to compete with soccer and softball? The answer was, we're going to start competitions. And so the world of competition dance was born as a result of Title IX. That's just one example of how ballet class intersects with so many aspects of American social and cultural history. So that's one answer. A second answer has to do with the way that ballet class provides a really important and I would say fascinating lens through which to look at issues of race, class, gender, and sexuality as they impact childhood. Ballet class has had to deal with all those issues. It hasn't always done a good job, at least by our so-called enlightened standards in 2020, um, but it has had to deal with these issues. And that's another, it is also another example of intersection, but it's a great lens to look at some of those issues in a kind of focused way. You know, how in a ballet studio do, or do issues like this come up? Well, it comes up that there are far fewer boys than girls most of the time. It comes up in that until the 60s, ballet class was segregated, as I said. It comes up in who gets teased about what kind of sexuality and sexual expression is acceptable. And I think that, in general, is an issue we don't think about as much for younger children as we should, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, class, you know, who gets to take ballet class? And associated with all of those are programs that many ballet companies have started to start offering ballet class or to make it more accessible to different groups that have been marginalized but there's all kinds of assumptions that go into that, too. Like, let's take ballet class to inner-city boys and give them some discipline. We could spend 20 minutes unpacking that. Now, there are many boys who, in those circumstances who really enjoy those classes and thrive as a result. So I'm not saying the programs are bad, but they are loaded. And so ballet class is loaded in all those ways. And as a third thing, I think um, it is important to think about how children have spent their time historically. And this is one of the ways a lot of kids over a lot of time have spent their time. And it's, you know, they're not just in school, they're not just in camp. This is something that literally millions of kids have done over the 20th into the 21st century. And just for that alone, it's worth spending our time on. I think the competition issue is so interesting because, you know, we watch those Winter Olympics yes. ice dancing competitions mm -hmm. or ice skating, which is really a, taking yeah. a form from ballet and putting it on not on a Marley floor, but on a different <laughs> yes. kind of floor. Um, and yet we don't get the same exposure to the wonderful world of ballet at all levels on, on television as much as we might, even though, the, as you point out, the demand for the books, the movies, it's there. 
Do you think there's a, a future for more ballet on, on our television? Actually, I'll say, I'll answer it from the historian's point of view. There's a past to that. Ballet used to be very prominent on TV. In the 50s and 60s into the 70s, their ballet was on TV all the time. The earliest TV variety type shows had ballet, ballet dancers were on Ed Sullivan at least once a month. I actually went through Ed Sullivan stuff and there was a lot of ballet on Ed Sullivan, which meant that the majority of Americans on Sunday nights were seeing some kind of ballet, which of course led to more kids wanting to take class. Um, and that included male dancers, by the way, who were on the Ed Sullivan show. Um, ballets were televised widely and seen widely. Um, they, you know, they, there, was, there was actually just a lot of ballet on television until the 1970s. Um, that is when the dance boom of the 1960s and 70s came to an end. Uh, there were fewer Soviet defectors to constantly goose up the ratings. Um, so Baryshnikov was kind of the last gasp of that. Anytime he wanted to do anything on TV, you bet they put him on TV. Um, he was in a fantastic special with Liza Minnelli that I really recommend to everybody. That was something else fun about this, watching some of those specials. Um, so there used to be more ballet on TV than there has been lately. I don't, I don't know what the future is. There are certain things that still get onto TV. Nutcracker broadcasts, for instance. And, you know, in, my, in the chapter in ballet class in American history on popular culture, I have three sections. Movies, television, and the Nutcracker, which deserves its own thing. And in fact, there is a wonderful book about Nutcracker, I should mention, by Jennifer Fisher. Um, so I think there could be more space, and I think the success of some of the dance reality shows shows that. But in today's splintered world, I think where people really watch ballet is on YouTube. Because you can watch performances, full classes, examinations at the Bolshoi School. I mean, any kind of ballet you want to see, you can see online. And so I think that the viewership has maybe shifted in that direction. So maybe we'll, we'll conclude by saying, after that wonderful remarks about the end of the defector era, that maybe diplomatic historians really need to explore the defection of Russian dancers, the intersection of American and Russian dance, uh, Russian and American dance company exchanges, that maybe there's, a, there's some history there that you've laid the pathway for for our colleagues in diplomatic history. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned this because there is an irony of American history. This is another example of why ballet class is so important. You'd think that during the, during the Red Scare and the Cold War, there would have been a lot of trouble for Russian ballet teachers or the idea of ballet as Russian, but that was not the case. That was ne there never seemed to be any red baiting within the world of ballet, which is actually a little odd considering that some of these people were in fact Russians. Or, um, so that's always been strange to me. But the, the truth is there, are, there is a little bit of literature on the way ballet was used diplomatically. Um, there's a book by Claire Croft that looks at Cold War culture. And she does have a chapter about the way that the State Department actually sponsored a variety of companies to go behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War and show how great America was. And so there were exchanges as early as the late 50s um, where there were some Russian companies coming to the U.S. and some, and some and other Eastern European country um, dance companies. That's actually that's what gave the defectors the opportunity to defect because they were already in the West. And it was and starting in the 1960s, there were ballet companies that went behind the Iron Curtain as well. And so I do think there's much more to be said and done about that. And I, you know, I'll be first in line to read it, but um, it did have an impact. There were people from all over the country who would line up for blocks to get tickets to see the Bolshoi, for instance, in New York when they performed there or in, or in LA. And so that's another example of how ballet class encapsulates all kinds of larger themes of cultural history. Now, one of the disappointments in doing this just as a 
an audio interview is I can tell people to go buy the book and we can talk about what's in the book, but until you get the book and open it up, you won't get to see pictures of Melissa and many of her family members That's right. in their little in a ballet class and in their tutus or in their tights and out there performing. So your book has sort of a special meet the author aspect to it, which I think, especially for that wonderful introduction, is really delightful. Yes, it's something that, I, if you ask me what was fun for me about doing the book, I'd say one of my favorite parts of ballet class in American history is the feature three generations of dancers in one American family, and that's my family photo album. So I hope you will all enjoy that. Thank you. Thanks, Janet. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.